Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This sermon is taken from the 2013 Israel and End Time Prophecy Conference. This is the evening service of Tuesday the 10th of September 2013. Here's Dr. Steve Cook. Good evening. It's great to be back here with you. I'm so happy, uh, delighted that uh, many of you have been here every service. And I appreciate that. And some of you I know wanted to be here and could not. And uh, but it's a blessing that you're here tonight. And uh, this will be my last night uh, here in uh, Birmingham. Tomorrow I'll be heading back toward Manchester. And uh, when I get back to Manchester, I'll overnight there, turn in my car overnight there, and then uh, get on a big plane and head back to uh, across the Atlantic Ocean back to America. And then uh, I have a whole day and a half off, and then I drive about six and a half hours or so um, to go preach uh, again. And uh, I, that's, that's my life, and uh, I'm thankful that God has allowed me the privilege of being an ambassador of Jesus Christ uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, pray for us <clears throat> uh, as we travel, as we minister uh, I'm so excited about what God has done this uh, two weeks that I've been here, this fortnight as you would call it. Uh, you all have been such a blessing and an encouragement to me. But also, uh, God has opened up some avenues in both Manchester and here in Birmingham. I've met some wonderful uh, pastors the last two trips I've been here, and we were able to solidify some things here this week as well in Birmingham. And uh, and as your pastor mentioned, uh, we've talked about coming back and doing a Jewish evangelism training uh, seminar. I have some, uh, some manuals that can be, uh, actually I can email them to you and you can put them together here. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we will distribute those and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and teach you how to effectively witness to the Jew. Uh, we make, I have several tracks. I, these are just a sampling of some of the tracks that we have. If you go on my website, you can read all of the tracks that I have so far, and uh, many of those are being translated into both Russian and Spanish and Hebrew, uh, so all three. So it just takes time. You know, uh, most of those tracks I've written the last six or seven months, and uh, we did have one translated into Russian, and I used that track. Uh, we passed out about 5,000 of those tracks in New York City uh, just a couple of months ago. And uh, we held a, a, a Thank God for Israel meeting, and we invited the Jewish people to come so that we as Christians could express our love for the Jewish people. Now, Jesus said to uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation is of the Jew. And so we need to realize that our salvation is of the Jew. Jesus was born a Jew. He came into this world, into the flesh, born uh, into the uh, family of David and the household of, uh, household rather, of David in the tribe of Judah. And he grew up and was reared as an Orthodox Jew. And, of course, uh, no man spake like this man spake. And he became a teacher to both the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We're going to look at a couple of verses here, and then I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 38 in the Old Testament. I want to remind you, December the 2nd through the 12th, 
will be co-hosting. Uh, actually, I'll be hosting a uh, Israel prophecy tour. If any of you are interested in, in joining us on that tour, uh, eight nights, uh, you'll stay three nights in uh, Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. The boat uh, captain that I use, his name is Daniel Carmel. There's two good Jewish names for you. Daniel Carmel. He's a born-again Jew. We call him a Jew born anew. And uh, he's a gospel singer also. And we'll have a, a, a little concert out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and a Jewish man singing the praises of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And uh, as I told you before, the guide that I used, Boaz Shalgi, had the privilege of leading him to Christ three years ago outside the empty tomb. And uh, we call him Brother B now, Brother B, <laughs> Brother Boaz. He found his kinsman redeemer. And then uh, we'll spend three nights in Tiberias, three nights in Jerusalem, and uh, two nights on the Red Sea. We'll stay at the dead, the med, and the red. So you'll get to see all the seas. And, and, uh, but, uh, and again, I want to, you know, no one's spoken up to me yet, and I'm disappointed you haven't. But I want you to consider, pray about Church, what you might be able to do to help your pastor and his wife go. I'd love to have them to go with me. Uh, I'll let your pastor preach on the Sea of Galilee on a boat. He can't get out and walk like Peter. He'd sink. I'd love to have some of you go with them. <coughs> Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. The Jews have always required a sign. They're a skeptical bunch, they are, and they want to see a sign. And so now here you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know why they're called Sadducees, don't you? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. <clears throat> in verse number two, he answered and said unto them, When it is evening, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. <clears throat> when it's morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites. This is Jesus talking now. Oh, you hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Wow. That was a scathing rebuke, wasn't it? You see... They wanted a sign, but he said, you know, you, you, you know when it's red in the morning, well, it's going to be a terrible day. When it's red at night, it's going to be wonderful. My, my uncle was uh, in the Navy, and uh, he used to use that saying all the time, red in the morning, sailor take warning, red at night, sailor's delight. And I thought, wow, he's a genius because every time it was red in the morning, it would rain. Red at night, the next day was beautiful. And then I realized when I got saved, it's in the Bible. <laughs> the most relevant prophecy, I believe, in the Bible, in our day, is found in Ezekiel chapter 38. Turn with me there for just a moment. So oftentimes, people want to know what time it is on God's prophetic calendar, and I've already told you that God's timepiece is Israel. Make no mistake about it. You need to keep your eyes upon Israel. God's calendar. Not very big country, always in the news, isn't it? 
There's a, there's a reason for that. In Ezekiel chapter 38, let me begin reading just the first four verses, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Verse number one, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us now to glean from your word. Help us to, Father, hide behind the cross tonight. We're nothing apart from Christ. And Lord, we have no power in our lips of flesh and clay. Father, I pray, God, that you would speak through us as a vessel unto righteousness tonight. You would get glory from your, for yourself, that we would rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, I, it's never my intent to mislead or wrongly divide your precious word. And Lord, I realize that one day I'll give an account for every idle word I've spoken. And I, I don't take lightly, Father, the privilege that's mine, the honor that's been given to me to preach behind this sacred desk this evening. Thank you for this church. Thank you, Father, for the membership here, the sweet, sweet spirit, Lord, that I've sensed from these brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for their pastor, his wonderful family, the fellowship we've enjoyed. Father, for the vision, for the spirit that unites us and binds us together in one singleness of mind. Father, I pray that you would bless the ministry here at Bethel Baptist Church. And Father, you would give them souls for their labor. And Father, during our time right now, I pray that, Father, you would help us now to glean from your word, that, Father, you might encourage us, burden us, cause our hearts to burn as they should. In these last days, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. God says, I will put hooks in the jaws, in thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth. When I thought about it, I thought about my Uncle Bob again. My Uncle Bob had no children. My father worked shift work and was gone a lot. And my Uncle Bob kind of took me under his wing as his own child. And I would go fishing with my uncle all the time. And when I thought about what it says here, and let me go back to this verse for just a moment, God says there's a, an individual named Gog, G-O-G, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. He says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaw and pull you out of the northern part. Now, keep that in relation with where Israel is. Israel is the navel of the earth. God calls it that in the scriptures. And if you were to put your finger in the middle of Israel and draw a line directly due north, you would dissect Moscow. Magog refers to Russia. Make no mistake about it. There are times in the Bible where there are prophecies that are difficult to discern. And then there are times when God gives us what I call 
specific predictive prophecy. When he names names, names of people, places, and things. Make no mistake about it, this is a specific predictive prophecy of the last days, the end times. What would cause Russia to want to invade Israel? Because that's what this prophecy is about, an end-time invasion of Israel. Keep in mind, before May the 14th, 1948, that would have been impossible. They had no nation. They had no government. They had no place of refuge from the persecutions of the Gentile countries and nations and powers of the world. Probably the most single significant event in our generation was May the 14th, 1948, when Israel was recognized as a free and independent state. What would cause Russia to come down? What hooks would God put into the jaws of Gog and Magog? I thought about my uncle, and he and I went fishing a lot. One time my dad let me borrow his brand new rod and reel. And we were out, we were plugging. I don't know if you what you all call it over here, but we were using artificial bait lures. And we call it plugging. And we were plugging. And I threw a line out, you know, and reel it in, and you'd hope a, a fish would snatch it and get hooked, and you'd drag it in. Well, it began to rain. And I wanted to cast a, a real long cast, and I really cast hard, and it slipped out of my hand. My dad's brand new rod and reel did. Boom. Sunk to the bottom, to the bottom of the lake. I was petrified because my father, he had just purchased that not long before. And the last thing I remember my dad saying to me was, son, you better take good care of this rod and reel. And I, I panicked. And, and my uncle, being the fisherman that he was, he got out these treble hooks. And a treble hook had several hooks, like three or four hooks on it. And he put a few of those on a line and, and, and put some sinkers out there. And he cast out there and he cast out there and reeled in. He cast out there again, reeled it in. Finally, he snatched a hold of my dad's rod and reel at the bottom of the lake. And he was able to, to, to bring it up. He put hooks into the jaws, if you will, of that rod and reel. And when I read this verse of scripture here, you know, that's exactly what it sounded like to me. That God says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaw, and I'm going to pull you out. So we know God is still on the throne. And we know that this prophecy will be fulfilled because of the divine provocation of God. God allows things. God orchestrates things because he's still on the throne. Now, we may not understand why, but God says, I will put hooks into the jaws of Gog and Magog, and pull thee out of the northern part. Now, I thought about three hooks, and I want to share very quickly three hooks that I think God will use to bring Russia to invade the country of Israel. First of all, economic hook. Russia's greedy. I, I do a lot of work in Russia. You know, I could say, Spasiva von Stoprich Lee, thank you for coming. God bless you. You know? And I can tell you that it's great for you to be here in Russian. But listen, listen, I have a good friend of mine who is Russian. He said, there's three things you need to, well, actually, he's Ukrainian. He said, there's three things you need to understand about a Russian. I said, what is that? He said, number one, never trust a Russian. He said, number two, never trust a Russian. 
He said, number three, I'm not Russian, I'm Ukrainian. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke, but the fact of the matter is, Russia wants to invade Israel in these last days because of greed. I'm not saying they want to today, but I'm telling you they're going to. And one of the hooks I think God will use will be the greed because of the economy of Russia or of Israel. Israel just recently has discovered both oil and natural gas. Isn't that interesting? Egypt cut off their natural gas and oil supplies that Israel had enjoyed for years under Hosni Mubarak. But after he was ousted, Egypt cut off the natural gas and oil supply to Israel. And you know what happened? God said, oh, by the way, if you look right here off the coast of Haifa, there's some oil. And by the way, down here in Tel Aviv, natural gas. And now Israel's independent. They don't need anybody's natural gas or oil, praise God. 6.6 million Jews in Israel today, but there's 6,600 millionaires living in Israel. Israel's gross national product is $123 billion annually. All of the Arab nations surrounding Israel, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan, combined is only $140 billion annually. You see, Israel has an economy today that is growing in leaps and bounds, while other economies, including the United States and Great Britain, is struggling. We're living in a, a day where the world is going through a recession, and Israel's booming. Their economy is growing. You go to the Dead Sea and look at the Dead Sea. You know what the, is in the Dead Sea? Yeah, by the way, look here. You can go out there and read a newspaper on your back and float. Why? Because the Dead Sea is 27% soluble. The Atlantic Ocean is only 3% soluble. It's so thick with, with uh, contents of minerals, including salt, that you can literally go out there almost like floating on a bowl of jello, and you can't sink. I mean, you can go under, but you'll pop right back up like a, a bulber on a fishing line. You see, the, the mineral content in the Dead Sea alone is worth trillions of dollars. The bromine, the potash, and the other uh, different types of minerals that can be harvested from the Dead Sea alone is worth more than the United States and Great Britain's economy combined. As a matter of fact, you ladies... Have you ever seen a skin lotion called Ahava? How many of you have seen that? Ahava, A-H-A-V-A. -A -A. Ahava, that's Hebrew for love. Ahava. And, and it's made in the Dead Sea. When I take my tour groups over there, we always stop at this kibbutz where they actually make Ahava lotion. And uh, they give my bus a discount. And then they give me a couple of big gift packs to take home to my wife, you see. <laughs> a little something for the effort there. I've been around the Jews long enough. Oy vey, business is business. <laughs> and so, but you know, they have so much wealth in the country of Israel. You know, do you realize that Israel supplies all the produce and fruit for all of their surrounding Arab neighbors? Most of it's raised right there in the uh, Jezreel Valley, what we, what we know as Armageddon. Sits right smack in the middle of Mesopotamia, and, uh, and the uh, Fertile Crescent and the, uh, the Afro-Syrian Rift where birds will fly and drop seed in Israel. Seeds can grow. Any, kind of, any product that can grow in the world can grow in Israel. 
Remember, it's only an hour and a half wide and four and a half hours long by car. It's amazing. What's this? Now, we're talking about Israel. You mean they grow hogs and they, they slaughter hogs in Israel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But see, these hogs aren't living in Israel. No, no. You see those pallets? They're not even touching Israel. Honest, that's exactly what the rabbis say. It, they're suspended between heaven and earth, and they're, they're walking on pallets. They don't walk on the land in Israel. And these are actually being raised outside of Nazareth. Why? Because there's a bunch of big fat Americans like me over here that love to eat bacon and ham, okay? And, and so they raise them and they sell them to us. They're not kosher pigs, but they're as close as you can get. And by the way, they also have, they also have the olive industry. Oh, how many of you ladies like to cook with virgin olive oil? Extra virgin olive oil. You've never had a bottle of it. Extra virgin olive oil would cost you $500 a bottle because it's the best of the best of the best. And the stuff that we get, they call extra virgin olive oil is not even close. These cooking shows, like they call extra virgin olive oil EVO, you know, uh, that's silly because it's cheap. We buy it for, I mean, if I had to pay $20 for it, I'm really upset about it. I'll tell my wife, buy something else, you know, just buy some Crisco or something, whatever. The flower industry of Israel, phenomenal. They have the most beautiful flowers in the world. I have a message entitled, The Rose of Sharon. Oh, what a breathtaking, beautiful flower, the Rose of Sharon. Maybe sometime I'll preach that for you here if I get come back. The tulips in Holland are mostly grown in Israel. And not only that, but when you consider the diamond cutting industry, Israel ranks number one in the world. Geniuses cutting diamonds and cutting stones. Then there's the Islamic hook. The economic hook, yes, Israel's worth its weight in gold. But then there's the Islamic hook. Now, how would that affect Russia, I wonder? Well, the Arab world, as we know, was united in the 7th century by Islam. Before that, they had 360 different gods. And by the way, Allah was the chief moon god. You want to know why they have a crescent moon above their mosque? Because Allah was a moon god. He's not the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the same god I worship, not even close. He was an idol. I better say it quietly. There's a lot of Muslims around here. I mean, I like that too well, but that's a fact. But today, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. 1.85 billion Muslims growing in the world, or in the world today. And they're growing at a rate of 2% per year. 2% is not very much. Well, it is of 1.85 billion. Think about it. It's a greater threat to the world than anything that we've ever seen as far as taking over and dominating countries. These are Muslims today in Moscow. Moscow. Not long ago, Moscow was an atheistic country. You didn't worship anyone in Russia unless it was underground. But this is in Moscow today. When you look at pictures like this and you think, well, Islam is a very peaceful religion. Well, not all Muslims are peaceful. There are many who are. 
And I'll be the first to say, there are many Muslims who are just as nice and kind as you and I. But they still need Jesus. But then there are some who would behead those that insult Islam. My friend, that's radical. And there is a growing number of fanatical, radical, volatile Muslims who believe that it is their calling by Allah to convert the world to Islam. And anyone who's not a Muslim is an infidel. Make no mistake about it. We know that this is, I don't have to tell you that. You already know that, don't you? These are the ones that commit 9-11 acts against the United States and and blow up uh, uh, tube uh, trains here in Great Britain and in Spain and at other places around the world. I'm not saying that every terrorist, uh, every Muslim is a terrorist, but I'm going to tell you about uh, the vast majority of terrorists are Muslim. That's a fact. 35% of Russia today has become Muslim. 35%. And that's significant because if you're the leader in Russia, like Vladimir Putin is, you've got to contend with that. As a matter of fact, they stop traffic in the streets to bow down toward Mecca. Think about that. And think about how Islam is spreading. Yes, the Islamic hook is significant. In Gaza, in Israel, it is controlled by a terrorist organization called Hamas. Hamas, who would just soon kill Jews as breathe. Then there's a third hook that I believe God will use to pull Russia from the north into the land of Israel. And that's the strategic hook. And that's important as well. You see, Israel is the crossroads into three continents. Into Europe, into Asia, and also into Africa. And if you control Israel, why, you control a great strategic location. The Suez Canal, if you control it, the Sinai Peninsula, you're able to keep from having to go all the way around the southern tip of Africa in order to get to Europe and vice versa. When you think about the Golan Heights in the northeastern corner of Israel, it is the, 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 the most natural the most logical location for any army invading Israel to pass through. I've been to the Golan Heights many times. I've taken pictures of Syria and saw smoke rising from the fighting that's going on in their civil war. I look behind me and there's a fort, an Israeli fort above me. I look there and see tanks And I see minefields, and I ask Boaz, Boaz, are those signs for real? He said, brother, we don't bluff. If you see a sign, you best not be stepping in it because there are mines there. This location, the Golan Heights, is significant to our defense. He lives at the foothills in the Hula Valley. When we look at this 
prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38, we find that God is going to pull Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, out of Russia. And But notice something else that we find. He says in verse 4, And I will bring thee forth, and all thy army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company of buckler, with bucklers and shields. Notice the specific predictive prophecy here. He mentions nations by name. Persia, Ethiopia, Libya with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands. The house of Tagarma of the north quarters and all his bands. And many people with thee. Be thou prepared and prepared for thyself. thyself. Thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, be thou a guard unto them. What we find here is an end time invasion of the nation of Israel. When's it going to happen? I'll tell you that in just a moment. But let's first look at the countries involved that are specifically mentioned in this prophecy. First of all, who is Gog? Gog is an individual, not a country, a person. He is the leader of an end time invading army, a coalition, if you will, against the nation of Israel. Magog, Meshach, Tubal, all reference to the nation of Russia today. During World War II, Great Britain ordered a supply of pencils from Russia. And do you know those little yellow pencils, number two pencils or whatever? On them was stamped Gog of Magog. And they came from Russia. Now, I don't want to go into all the historical uh, things, but one of the sons of Noah uh, made his way up into that area. And, and, of course, the descendants became, one of them was called Magog. What we find is not only Russia, but also Persia. Now, who is Persia? Where is Persia? Persia is Iran. Iran. You see, Iran still speaks Persian today, or Farsi. Then you have Ethiopia, Sudan. Of course, we know that both of those are in Africa. And not only that, we have Libya, northern Africa. And then we have Gomer and Togarma. That's the land between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, what we call Turkey today. And not only that, down later on in the passage in chapter 38, you would find Sheba and Dedan, which are parts of Saudi Arabia. These countries, specifically named, are mentioned in this particular prophecy. And they represent all four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. Think about that. These invading armies converging on Israel from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, all simultaneously under the leadership of one named Gog. Now, I will tell you this. In the days of Ezekiel, these countries had nothing in common. Nothing at all. As a matter of fact, they have not had anything in common until recently. Have you ever asked yourself what might unite these diverse countries? And I think today it's become, become painfully obvious. The answer to that question is Islam. Now they are all Islamic. I will say this to you. <laughs> 
Two nations are conspicuous by their absence. We just talked about them last night. Egypt and Syria. You see, Egypt and Syria are not part of, they're not part of this end time invasion. And the reason why they're not part of the end time invasion is given to us in Isaiah chapter 19. When Egypt is called my people by God. And Assyria is called the work of my hands. And Israel is called mine inheritance. I also might add that there's another country that's not mentioned by name. And that would be Iraq or Babylon. Do you know that the second most mentioned city in the Bible is the city of Babylon? And do you know that in the book of Revelation, the most mentioned topic in the book of Revelation is Babylon? Mentioned one out of every nine verses. Well, what about Babylon? Where is Babylon? Oh, Babylon. That would be uh, the land between the great Euphrates and the Tigris River. That would be uh, Iraq today, Baghdad. That will be the seat of the Antichrist. That will be the seat of of the beast. And by the way, when you look at Revelation chapter 17 and 18, it's all about Babylon. And some people say, oh, well, Babylon, well, there's a, it's, just, it's spiritualized. It's not talking about a real city. Oh, yes, it's talking about a real city. Because there are real prophecies concerning a city that will burn and go up in smoke. And that has never been fulfilled yet but it will be fulfilled about midway through the tribulation period. That's another sermon. Russia, the bear, is going to rear his ugly head. And with him, this end-time invading army outlined in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. By the way, never before in history of humanity have these nations being so aligned as they are today where the fulfillment of this prophecy could happen at any time. Are we living in the last days? You better believe we're living in the last days. Make no mistake about it. Putin. Let's talk about Vladimir Putin for just a few moments. And let me say this to you. If he is not Gog, he is Gog-esque. And I mean that, and listen, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But if he, he could very easily be Gog. If he's not, he is certainly paving the way for one to follow after him. And let me show you what I'm talking about. Putin has recently attended what's called the Strategic Outlook Conference where Putin put forth what's called Islamic Initiative or the Russian people. In other words, he has decided that Russia's top priority has become to assist and to help in joint efforts involving Islamic states. Not long ago in Indonesia, Vladimir Putin attended the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Conference, and there requested membership into the Organization of Islamic Conference. It is a it is an organization of Islamic states. This same man 
continuously has aided the Iranians in the enrichment of plutonium, weapons-grade plutonium. And, of course, today Russia opposes any sanctions against Syria for the killing of their own people, and it's now over 100,000 people that Assad has killed in his own country. Why is he cozying up to Syria? Because it's an Islamic state. Make no mistake about it. He's been cozying up to him before that civil war ever began. They have an arms agreement where he sells weapons into Syria. And there are people in Russia who are opposed to Russia assisting this new madman of the Middle East. Today, Vladimir Putin has also partnered with Turkey. Turkey's one of the, one of the specific mentioned countries in this end-time alliance. Russia has agreed to build nuclear plants in Turkey, but what about Turkey and Israel's relationship? It has deteriorated. Remember when uh, Turkey, uh, a ship left Turkey, <clears throat> and it came, tried to break the blockade around Gaza, and uh, special forces from Israel boarded the boat, and fighting broke out, and the Israelis killed some of the people who were trying to kill them? Yeah, well, they, they, blame Russia, they blame Israel for that. And so they have deteriorated in relations with Israel. Israel's ambassador was then expelled from Turkey. Only days later, Egyptian mobs seized Israel's embassy in Cairo. Putin was the first Russian leader ever to visit Libya. Libya is one of the specific mentioned nations in that area. Russia sold arms to Hamas in Algeria. Not only that, Putin became the first Russian president in over 40 years to visit Egypt. And again, Russia test fires sea ballistic missiles uh, with a range of some 6,200 miles. That'll reach in the United States. And, and, and Russia developed what's called the vacuum bomb. The vacuum bomb, what's that? Well, it's a bomb when it explodes in the air. It wipes out all electronic capabilities in a given area, depending on the size. Imagine flying an F-16 with uh, cruise missiles attached to the wings, and all of a sudden your computer goes out in your jet, and you're the pilot, and you've got ballistic missiles. You've got a problem. Everything runs on computers today, and the Russians are building their military, and they're selling supplies to Islamic State, trying to change the balance of power in the Middle East, and they're doing it. Russia claimed that it owned the North Pole. <laughs> I thought Santa Claus did. But, you know, Russia believed that they, they owned, he owned the North Pole and the Arctic Circle. And, of course, the reason for that is what? Oil. Oil. Russia cut off natural gas supply to Ukraine because Ukraine was going to put some uh, missile shields up that the United States and NATO was going to help them build. Russia, Iran, China, and other Muslim states got together and, and had joint war games just a year or so ago. And, and can you imagine an army equipped that way with that many people? What a devastating thing. Well, here's something else about Vladimir Putin. Since 1991... 
220 journalists in Russia have been killed. 101 journalists have died since Putin took office a little over 10 years ago. Obviously, that's a problem. This particular journalist here, Anna Politskaya, was shot to death as she was walking into her own apartment complex because she exposed Putin's arms deal with Syria. This former KGB and ex-Russian spy had exposed Putin's involvement in the death of Anna Politskaya. And in the process, he was poisoned right here in Great Britain. You remember that? And, and when they did the biopsy or they, when they did the toxicology report to find out what it was that was causing him to be sick, they found out, guess what? It was pol pol uh, polonium 210. And the only people who make that is Russia. He had met a couple of his ex-KGB friends in, in Paris for lunch. Bad mistake. This man on his deathbed on British television said, and I quote, you may succeed in silencing me, but that silence comes at a great price. You have shown yourself to be as barbaric and as ruthless as your most hostile critics have claimed. You have shown yourself to have no respect for life, for liberty, or any civilized value. You may succeed in silencing one man, but the howl of protest around the world will reverberate, Mr. Putin, in your ears for the rest of your life. And then Litvinenko died right here in England. What's all that mean to talk about Putin? I'm not here to bash Putin. I'm just showing you how that this prophecy is the most relevant prophecy, I believe, in our day, today. Because for the first time in history, the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. I believe the stage is being set for the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. Look at what it says in verse 8, Ezekiel 38. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people. What land would that be? First of all, when will that be? In the latter years. It tells us right there. But what land is he talking about? Against the mountains of Israel. You see, Ezekiel's specific predictive prophecy, names, 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 the names of countries, of people, and of places, which have always been waste, but is brought forth out of the nations. They shall dwell safely, all of them. Did you hear that? They shall dwell safely, all of them. They shall ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be a cloud to the cover of the land, thou and all thy bands, many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. He's talking to Gog now. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, 
all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. We know he's going to invade Israel. And we know he's going to have an evil thought. That thought is, hey, I'm going to go there and plunder that whole country. And, and by the way, this country, it's unwalled. It's dwelling safely. It's at rest. doesn't have walls. doesn't have bars and gates. My friend, there has never been peace in Israel, only periods where there has been an absence of war. So when, I ask you, when do we see a time like this? Notice, therefore, son of man, prophesy, say unto Gog, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely. Shall thou not know it? And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel, God says, as a cloud to cover the land. And it shall be in the latter days. Only two times in the Bible do we find that Israel dwells safely. You know what they are? Certainly you know one of them. When will Israel dwell safely? And of course, when Jesus is sitting upon the throne of his father David. That's during the kingdom, amen? Oh, well, I don't believe in a real kingdom. Well, you should. Six times is mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, alone. There's going to be a time when Jesus is sitting upon the throne of his father David, ruling with a rod of iron, the Bible says. And when he does, the nation of Israel will dwell safely, and the lion will lay down with the lamb. But when else, when else will Israel dwell safely? During the first half of the tribulation period? When they enter into a treaty with the Antichrist? And they say, oh, we've got the Savior now, praise the Lord. We're protected. We can let our guard down. Finally, we're not going to be persecuted. The Antichrist, this world dictator, he's going to take care of us. That's a false sense of security, but they're dwelling safely and at rest without bars and gates. So when is this, when is this end time invasion going to take place? It will take place during the first half of the tribulation period. Now, folks, I'm not worried about Antichrist. I know Jesus Christ. I'm not worried about Antichrist. I won't be here. I'll be saved from the wrath to come because the rapture will occur before the Antichrist enters into a covenant treaty with the, with the nation of Israel, according to Daniel chapter 29, or chapter 9, verse 27, really. Notice verse 18. It shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury, God says my fury, shall come up in my face. Yes, he brought Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, out of the land of Magog, down. He, yes, he brought all these invading armies against the land of Israel. And when it happens, God says, when it happens, then my fury shall come up in my face. Think about it. Here's all of these armies coming to this little tiny country called Israel. It's the mother of all wars. It's not the Battle of Armageddon, by the way. But to that point, it's the mother of all wars to Israel. Question, how will Israel survive? Answer, God will defeat Gog. Make no mistake about it. 
God does it in such a way that no one else on earth could take credit. Not the Israeli Defense Force, not the United States of America, not NATO, not the European Union, not even the Antichrist can claim the victory that will be had when God defeats Gog. Because God will defeat him with an earthquake. God will defeat him with friendly fire. He'll confuse them to where they turn on each other. God's done that in the past. He'll do it again. God will cause a disease to wipe out much of the army. And you can read it for yourself if, by reading chapter 38 and 39. And by natural disasters. <laughs> now, folks, you can't control the weather. And God will use all of those supernatural means by which to defeat Gog. And why does God allow the war to even be fought? And the answer is found in chapter 39, verse 7. Here's the reason. <laughs> so I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Two good reasons that God gives us right here in verse number 7. First, he says, Israel will know that I am Jehovah God who delivered them, not the Antichrist whom they are trusting in. It's always better to trust in God rather than a man. You can trust in me. You can trust in your pastor. We might let you down, but God will never fail you. And so secondly, not only so that Israel might know that it was Jehovah God who delivered them, but also that the Gentile nations will know that it was Jehovah God who delivered Israel. Question, has God forsaken Israel? Absolutely not. God has not forsaken Israel. I want to end this conference, and I want to tell you a story about a man by the name of Genius Korshak. I don't know if you know him or not, ever heard of him or not. But this man here, Genius Korshak, was a, uh, a pediatrician, a child doctor. He was a, an author of children's stories, books. And he loved children. He was a Jew living in Poland. He absolutely loved children. So he quit his job as a doctor. And he became a director of a children's orphanage. Jewish children orphanage. And he was the director of the... Uh, what's called the Krokmalina Street Orphanage in Warsaw. For years, he worked there with these children. And even in the midst of the Holocaust, this man lived in an attic in a small room just so that he might be able to direct that orphanage because he had such a passion for these children, these Jewish children. One day, the Gestapo comes. Mr. Korshak, tomorrow we will come and we will take your children. You have them ready when we come. Now, there was a group 
called Zagona. And this group was like an underground who found out about what was going to happen to those Jewish children. And they came and offered Janus Korshak an opportunity to escape the ghettos. He refused. No, I'll never leave these children. And so he told the children, tomorrow we are going to leave the ghetto and we're going to the countryside where you can see the butterflies, the birds, and the sky. And the smell of the country is so much better than the ghetto that we live in. I want you to put on your very best clothes and, and I want you to I want you to bring your favorite toy, favorite book. Be prepared. Next morning, a couple of nurses and Janus Korshak assemble the children together. And Korshak and his children, ages 2 to 13, march to the railroad yard. These children were put on cars. When he got to the railroad yard, there was a, a German soldier who said, Aren't you Janus Korshak? Yes. You're the author of my favorite childhood book. Do, do you not understand where these children are going? Let me help you escape. Again, he refuses. And they head to Treblinka, death camp. 192 children. Twice, he refused to abandon his children. They got off the train and they marched into the gas chamber. He was found with a child in his arms. Preacher, why are you telling me this? This was a Jewish man who went all the way to the end for his children. And there was a Jew named Jesus 2,000 years ago who went all the way to the end for you and for me. Bow your heads. I don't know if you've been saved or not. I hope and pray that you have been. If you haven't been, the greatest story the world could ever know is the story of Jesus who laid down his life for you, for me, for whosoever will. And I can try to be a cheerleader for Jesus and try to stir your emotions, but listen, folks, if you don't love Jesus, enough to go tell other people about what he did for you. I don't know what in the world could cause or motivate you to be what God would have you to be. This is the old, old story that never grows old. This is the story of God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son to taste death for those who hated him as well as those who loved him. I do what I do because I love Jesus. I'm not perfect. 
Don't claim to be. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But I sure thank God every day for the privilege of being his ambassador. If you are a child of God, I ask you, search your heart. If you're not doing what God would have you to do, you can't change yesterday, but you can change today, can't you? You can repent, rededicate your life, and start living. You know, we got enough people in this auditorium this evening that you could turn Birmingham upside down for the cause of Christ if you would just commit yourself. D.L. Moody used to hold great revivals here and said he wanted to be man of God to the point where God can use him to turn the world upside down. He said it. If a man would just commit himself wholeheartedly to God, it could be done. Before he died, he said, I must confess I'm not that man. He saw hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in England saved. Those days could happen again here. I'm going to pray, <clears throat> and I'm going to ask the pastor if he would to come to give the invitation. But you just obey the Holy Spirit. That's all I'm asking you to do tonight. Father in heaven, I pray you might, Father, have your way in these people's heart and life. Father, you'll revive me again as well. Father, I might be all you would have me to be. Use me, I pray. I give myself wholly to you, Father, tonight. Father, you might use me to send me wherever you might want to send me to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. For these folks here, this is their Jerusalem. This area right here. Help them, Father, to be faithful, obedient, to saturate it with the gospel. There's one here tonight unsaved, I pray, that, Father, you would draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.